Uh, one of the things that I have learned recently is that uh, what Jesus continues to do and teach isn't very exciting to an eight-year-old. So, <laughs> it really isn't. Um, one of the things that, so I'll, I'll go into the, the room and talk to my son, Aiden, and I try to tell him, hey, Aiden, um, Jesus has the ability to help you with some of the problems that you're dealing with. And one of the things that Aiden will respond with is he says, I know, Dad, but Jesus just doesn't have any superpowers. Like, he, he rose from the dead. <laughs> you know, what more do you want? <laughs> so I'll, I'll think that in my mind. But one of the things that Aiden is thinking of is, look, Jesus can't fly. Jesus doesn't have really cool weapons. Jesus doesn't blow stuff up. You've got to see the world through the mind of an eight-year-old for a few minutes. <laughs> what Aiden does is he sort of filters the world. Um, the, he filters notions of power through his eight-year-old mind, this kind of grid that defines what problems will look like and what the solutions to those problems look like. And what he's really looking for is something like Harry Potter. It doesn't help that he's reading Harry Potter and watching Star Wars. He's looking for Superman in a lot of ways. And um, one of the things I think is interesting is that we all face a similar challenge, especially when we read Acts 1, 4 through 8. That's the passage that we're focusing on primarily today. What happens is you hear words like kingdom and spirit and baptized in the spirit, and he will come in power... And one of the things that we do is we filter those words through our own grid, our own preconceived notion of what power looks like and what kingdoms look like and what we think a spirit will look like. And you may think that power looks like political will, just getting enough votes to make something in the world happen. You may think that it, it comes from within, that it's good old-fashioned American morality, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps when nobody else is going to. Or you may think that it's, it's a dr- dramatic display of giftedness or some great experience that you've had in the past. Or maybe when you think of power, you just think of the abuse of authority, some angry father or a bad teacher who was cruel or a corrupt politician. You may not want to have anything to do with power or with kingdom. What's really interesting, if you look at verse 6, is you'll see that the disciples also took what Jesus said and they misinterpreted it. The disciples read the word kingdom through their grid of nationalism. Okay, those guys were thinking, look, basically they say, if you look at verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's another way of saying, hey, what's in it for us? When are you going to bring out the armies of angels? When are you going to bring out natural disasters and swords and show the Romans who's really boss. But Jesus does what Jesus does often. He doesn't even answer the question. He just redirects them. He redirects their question and he actually calls into question their preconceived notions of power. He says, listen, the father is going to advance his kingdom. The father is going to bring himself glory. It is, he is going to give you his spirit. It's going to be his power. It's not going to come on your own terms. It can't be manufactured. It's not going to look the way you think it's going to look like. It's not going to come at the time or the hour or the season when you think it's going to come. It's going to be totally God-centered, totally God-driven totally God-directed, totally God-glorifying, but what it's going to do is it will sweep you up into what God is doing in this world that he has created. If you try to plug God into your own preconceived notions of power, that would be to bring God down to a human level. But God himself has given you his powerful spirit, and he's inviting you. He's inviting you to participate 
in the advancing of his kingdom. And we see that here in Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. So the question is this, how do we participate? How do we participate in the advancing of God's kingdom? And I want to talk about three ways. First of all, we need to understand the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Two, we need to understand the nature of God's kingdom. And three, we need to understand how the Spirit empowers us as witnesses for that kingdom. So spirit, kingdom, and us. Those are the three things that we're going to look at. And I'm really hot, so if I pass out, I give Steve Huber permission to come take over. It'll be like a tag team. He'll just come take over. Just move me off to the side. I'll be fine. And then he can take over and finish up. Okay. So. All right. First of all, we need to understand the Holy Spirit. And that's not easy. Okay. Point one. What is the Holy Spirit? What can we learn about the Holy Spirit from this passage? There's, that's not an easy task because there's quite a bit of confusion in the church about the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's really easy for us to get our minds around concepts like father, God, the father and God, the son, because we have some sort of concept of what a father and a son does. But when it gets to spirit, we kind of get strange. It's too nebulous. It's sort of like, and then what we do is we fill in with things like, um, spirits from horror movies or even worse, like little ghosts from Scooby-Doo, or maybe you might think of the force. But Acts can help us. It can help us clear up some of this confusion. Look at verse 4. Luke calls the Spirit the promise of the Father. So he defines the Spirit as a promise and as the fulfillment of the the promise. And so when the Spirit of, of, of God arrives, when the Holy Spirit arrives, God the Father is doing something that he said he was going to do. God is doing something he said he was going to do. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that he said he was going to do? When did he say it? And if you go all the way back, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve fell into sin from the very beginning, basically God announces, I'm going to fix what went wrong. I'm going to heal what was broken. I'm going to restore things. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to gather this people to myself. And I'm going to call them my very own. And they're going to worship me. And I'm going to take that people and I'm going to send them out to all the other peoples of the earth. And they're going to bring my glory with them. Okay. And so what he would do, if you read throughout the Old Testament, is he would take the spirit, his spirit, and sort of put it on top of various people. It would come onto kings. It would come onto prophets. It would come onto um, leaders. You may think of Samson, if that's like kind of a popular and famous story. You remember the spirit sort of falls on him at that last moment, at moments, and then the spirit leaves. Here's the problem, is that throughout the Old Testament, the spirit is sort of coming and bouncing. It's coming and going. It's coming and going. And as Israel as God's people fail in what he had asked them to do. They fail to do what he asked them to do. Why? Because they're worshiping other gods. They're bowing down before idols. And as they fail, the prophets think, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a day that the spirit would come and that the spirit would stay? That the spirit would stay. And if you go and read Ezekiel 36, 26, God himself says, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit inside you. It's not going to be on top coming and going. It's going to be in you. And you can read in Joel chapter two, something very similar. He said, in those days, I'm going to send the spirit and it's going to come on all flesh. And in Jesus, the, the good news is that in Jesus, that day has come. He has accomplished what the people of Israel could not accomplish. He did it on their behalf. And listen, what that means is crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, 
and coming of the Spirit all act as like one series of events that fulfill the entire promise that God was going to, to give. It was, it's sort of like the exclamation point at the end of the promise that says, I will be your God, you will be my people. The Spirit arrives. And that's powerful. It means God keeps his promises. God does what he says he's going to do. And that's amazing. Promises have power. Think about this. If a man says to his wife, I will remain faithful to you in marriage, and then he commits adultery and goes and cheats and and finds another woman, the power of the promise itself crushes her. If he hadn't made these promises, either explicitly or implicitly, the damage wouldn't be so bad. But the promise itself has power. If I tell my kids, if I could use another example, if I tell my kids, I'm going to take you guys to Hershey Park this summer, and then I do it, the promise itself and the doing of the thing gives them joy. Think about it, because suddenly what happens is it's not only going to Hershey Park, but they get to say, my dad is the greatest. (laughs) which is rare, <laughs> a lot of broken and false promises <laughs> given, to, given to my children. But um, if I do say I'm going to do something and then fulfill it, th- then it reflects my character. We get to go, we get to have the joy of going to do this thing, and my dad is great. My dad is the one who has done it. He is faithful. So these things point us in the direction of God. I mean, how much more with God, who's been planning this wedding for so long? He's been planning this trip for a- a- eons, for hundreds and hundreds of years and he's bringing you into a part of the plan. Think of this. Here's what this means. It, this means God gives the church his spirit. That means you have what Abraham didn't have. You have what Moses didn't have. You have what David didn't have. Isn't this amazing? Remember Jesus says about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the greatest of those Old Testament saints, but he was still the least in the kingdom of God. Because you have the spirit, you have seen the risen Jesus. You come after Jesus, you have the things, you have, a, you have better things than they did. If you think they lived God's inner lives, if you think they obeyed faithfully, think of how much more you have in the spirit that has been given. You have direct access to Christ. And listen, if nothing else, that should fill you with hopeful expectation. That should fill you with hopeful expectation, the God who keeps his promises will continue to keep his promises to you. And that's one thing I've been realizing lately about myself. I'm not filled with hopeful expectation. My wife and I were talking, we haven't seen people coming to know Jesus. Well, why? Maybe because I'm sitting around not expecting and it would be half surprised if they did. But because the Spirit is here, he's calling us to be filled with a hopeful expectation that he will do the things that he said he's going to do. Listen, that's why Paul talks about the Spirit as a guarantee. He says, look, God sent his Son. His Son is going to come back. Jesus has risen from the dead. You yourselves can be raised. And the Spirit is the guarantee of that promise. The Spirit connects you to Jesus Which means that what is true of Jesus is true of you. So you should be encouraged too by this. Filled with hopeful expectation and encouraged. What's true of Jesus is true of you. If you believe in him and have been filled with his spirit, he has been declared righteous. You are declared righteous. He has been accepted. You are accepted. So sin no longer has any power over you. You have the spirit, which is a spirit of gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and peace and self-control. All those things that we read about in Galatians. 
And that means there's real power to overcome whatever sin it is that you're facing, whatever darkness or addiction that you may be facing. There's real power, whether it's anger or whether it's fear of other people, whether it's depression, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's sexual lust, whatever it is, there's real power in the spirit. And he's inviting you as a first step to trust in the faithful one and hope expectantly for change. Hope expectantly for change that comes with the gift of the spirit. Okay. That's a little bit about the spirit. Let's talk a little bit about the kingdom too. Okay. What the spirit is doing, the spirit is bringing you a new life. That's a way to paraphrase all of point one. The spirit is offering you a new life in Christ. And another way of saying that, it's just another way of saying the same thing, is to say the Spirit is bringing you into God's kingdom. Okay, so we have to understand the nature of this kingdom. First of all, the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of man. And um, one of the things that happens is we're constantly trying to solve spiritual problems with human solutions. And we're constantly trying to fight spiritual battles with human authorities. And um, if you look back at verse 6, again, another, you know, basically the reason the disciples didn't think that the coming of the kingdom, um, the reason that they thought of it, the coming of the kingdom as political or as economic is because they're too self-centered to submit themselves to God's plan. Hang on to that for a minute, okay? Do you see what I'm saying? It's very easy for you to say, I want some sort of political change, which is really for the good of everybody else. I want some kind of large-scale, huge economic change, which is for the good of everybody else. But what you're really doing is saying, I want to push it out there. I want the problem and the solution to be out there rather than for the problem and the solution to be in here. Remember, um, we, you could see this with, the, with regime change. You know, when we were watching um, all the things that were happening in Egypt and we were watching Yemen and, and Jordan and all the various places, basically, regime change will bring out the masses, and that's kind of what you saw, regardless of which regime you want or which you're in favor of, the masses sort of go out into the streets looking for something that's, that's going to serve them. What's in it for me? What can I get out of this? Can I break something? You know what I mean? Is, is everybody with me? Um, maybe if I can give you another example of this. When I was teaching freshman composition, um, I used to teach English at Montgomery County Community College. And the first day of every semester, what I would do is I would ask students, what's the biggest problem in the world? Okay, what's wrong with the world? And they never had a problem thinking of stuff that's out there. They would think of, man, it's climate change. I'd have them write an essay, in-class essay on day one. It wasn't very nice. <laughs> and, you know, they're scribbling away frantically, but they would always think of, man, it's, it's, it's the climate, it's economy, it's, it's terrorism, it's, this, it's the Democrats, it's the Republicans, it's the liberals, it's the conservatives, it's moral decline, it's poverty. They would think of thousands of things. Each of you could probably write an essay on that. But I never had one student answer that question the way that G.K. Chesterton famously answered the question, I am. I'm the biggest problem um, in the world. And look at Jesus' response. That takes us to verse 7 and 8. He says, let me read verse 7 and 8 again. Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's basically saying, you're not God. Welcome um, to the way things work. And then he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That means I am going to change you. 
You thought the change was going to come out there, but the change is actually going to come to you. You are the ones that need the change. The change begins in your heart. See, we think our expectations are too big, but they're actually, in fact, too small. It's one of the reasons um, that I wasn't very impressed with... um, with the killing of Osama bin Laden. One of the reasons I wasn't impressed with that is because if you have enough guns and you have enough time and you have enough planning and enough Navy SEALs, you will eventually get the bad guys. You know what I mean? However, think of this. Think of this. You could send guys to my house. You could send Navy SEALs to my house with guns, have them point it directly at my head and say, go love your neighbor and try to force me into loving my neighbor, even to just going over to his house and treating him like a human and loving him and inviting him in and preaching the gospel to him. And I, it still wouldn't change my heart. I, even if it changed my behavior, I could go over there. I could say, okay, guys, I don't want to die. I could go over there and act certain ways, but it wouldn't get to the root of the problem. It wouldn't change the human heart, but that's the thing that God says the spirit is doing. That's what he says the spirit is doing. The spirit could do what armies can't do. The spirit could do what guns can't do. The spirit could do what all sorts of force can't do. And we think we invent millions of ways to force people to do things. We call it legislation. We call it moralism. We call it self-esteem. We call it self-help, but we try to fix problems with human solutions rather than with a divine solution that comes from the Spirit. And one of the reasons is because we think the problems are out there. I I heard a pastor say one time, somebody came up to him and he was saying, um, hey, what do you think about the problem of pornography in the church? And you could insert any problem in here. And the guy, I'll never forget the response because this pastor said, I am a pornographer. You know, and it shocked, everybody's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he went on to explain, it's in my heart. I can think of all the lustful things that pornographers could develop or could invent or could put, put on a screen. The seed of every sin is right there in my heart. What we need in the power of Jesus, what we need in the power of his spirit is radical heart change. And that's what he's promising. That's what he's giving. Okay, I want to clear up one misconception, though. Just because the kingdom is spiritual, it doesn't mean that it's subjective. It doesn't mean that it's purely internal. It doesn't mean it's only an experience or an emotion. Okay, on the contrary, um, God's spirit can bring you into his kingdom because both the spirit and both the kingdom are objective realities. So what I'm trying to say is the spirit is not your conscience. The spirit is not the force. The spirit is not just something that some people can intuit and others cannot. The Bible always describes the spirit in personal terms. He is a comforter. He is a counselor. He is a helper. He is a teacher. He is one who convicts you. He is one who helps you to pray. He can be grieved. He can be walked with. He is a person. And so we should pray for him and pray to be filled with him. I think one of the problems here is that Protestants especially tend to be too precise. So I was reading a, um, a biography of four Catholic authors, and the, the, it's called The Life You Save May Be Your Own, which is an allusion to Flannery Connor, who's also the greatest short story writer in the 20th century. That's free of charge. Go home and buy the collected works of Flannery Connor and read them. One of the reasons Flannery, uh, this, the, Paul Elliott, the guy who wrote the book, 
says one of the reasons that authors like Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, James Joyce, all those guys, one of the reasons that they write such good fiction is because out of the Catholic tradition, they're not so concerned with precision. You see what I mean? The, the, he, he basically says, look, to, you have to have an imagination to write fiction. And he says, hey, Protestants out of the Reformed tradition are great at systematic theology and getting down to every little nut and bolt um, and everything along those lines. But Catholics are great in intuiting the spirit and understanding that things aren't going to be able to define. You can't nail God down. You can't put the spirit into neat little boxes or systematic categories. That's part of the problem. So a better approach is to pray. You can't think about the spirit without thinking of prayer and um, submit to him. Yield to him. Basically, that means go home today and invite him to work. During our service, invite him to work. Direct your attention to the spirit. Worship the spirit. Go home and try worshiping the spirit. Listen for the spirit, which means you're going to have to be quiet. It means you might have to be quiet and wait for a long time. That means you may have to remove the distractions that are in your life. And look for where the spirit is at work. Look for where, where the spirits work. That's the, key, my, uh, the thing I keep saying because we have such a propensity to be negative and to complain and to criticize and to look at the things that are wrong. Um, but Jesus is inviting us, looking around you and the people you're working with, where do I see the spirits work? And then go there. Go there. It's, and that's going to mess with all of our plans. It's going to mess with all of our visions. It's going to mess with all of our comfort because suddenly we're going to have to readapt and change. We're going to have to say, the spirit's over there. I'm going to go there to where the spirit is. And as we do, he is ushering us into his kingdom. Okay, so that's the spirit, a little bit more about the spirit and the kingdom of God. Now let's talk a little bit about your role as witnesses. Okay, another way of summarizing everything that I've been saying right now is that it's difficult to talk about the spirit and kingdom because they're invisible. Okay, it's difficult to talk about them because we can't see them. It's difficult to get our minds around them. But what Luke is teaching in Acts, especially in Acts 1, is that the church exists to make God's invisible kingdom visible. The church exists to take heavenly realities and bring them to earth. And so what happens is God puts his spirit into individuals. And then he unites, he kind of knits these individuals together into communities that he calls the church. And then he takes these churches and says, you are to act as witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, the churches are like um, kingdom outposts. Liberty is a kingdom outpost in Fairmount. Um, Liberty East is a kingdom outpost over um, for all of those neighborhoods over on the east. Liberty Center City is an outpost. They are kingdom outposts. And what do outposts do? They basically show people what God is like, who he is. And what he has done. So as we participate with the kingdom, as we orient ourselves towards the kingdom, as we align ourselves to the kingdom, we're sort of like, um, we're like in a sailboat looking for the way the wind is blowing and then setting our sails so that the spirit is moving us. And we're showing all those who are around us what God is and what he has done. And that's how witnesses are defined um, in Isaiah. If I can go back to the Old Testament um, for a brief detour that I think will be uh, applicable. In Isaiah 40 through 45, you see the word witness all over the place. God says, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. And basically in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is telling us that God is trying to establish his kingdom on earth. Just like we were talking about earlier, God is taking a people and those people are bringing God with them everywhere that they go. 
And it's going to start in Jerusalem, and it's going to move out from there to all nations. But the people failed because they were worshiping other gods and following these idols. And this is what God does in Isaiah, in Isaiah 41. He basically says, let's put the idols on trial. Let's have a trial, okay? Let's have a little trial. It's kind of like a courtroom drama, which again is easy for us to imagine. He puts the idols on one side, and then he puts his people on the other side. And so he takes all of these idols who are made of wood, they're made of stone, they cannot speak, they cannot act, and he says, bring them out and let them show me their power. I want to see what they can do. And, and they can't do anything. He says, basically, look, you cut a little piece of wood, you cook some things on the fire with part of it, and then you make an idol with the rest of it, but it's all your human imagination, it's all your human invention. But then he takes his people on the other side and he says, let's have them be my witnesses. But what's the problem with the people? He says, the people themselves were blind. The people themselves were deaf. But he says, I'm going to do for the people what I would not do for the idols. I'm going to do for my people what I will not do for the idols. I'm going to crush the idols, but I'm going to bring words and voice to my deaf people. I'm going to bring sight to the blind. I'm going to set the captives free. Does that sound familiar? Jesus shows up on the scene in Luke 4 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have been anointed to to preach good news. And what's that going to be? I'm going to heal the blind eyes. I'm going to make the mute speak. I'm going to set the captive prisoners free. And he does that physically and literally heals people. But those are signs of kingdom restoration that have come. And then when you get to Acts, in Acts 1, basically, he says, you will receive that power. You have received that gospel transformation. You have received the freedom from your sins. You have received the restoration that you're looking for. But that cannot be separated from, you will be my witnesses. You have received power. Now go do what I had intended for my people to do. That's what he's saying. Gospel um, transformation, if I could put it this way, cannot be separated from gospel mission. It's the ordinary way that the church works. It's not the exception. We can't sit around basking in what the Spirit is doing without going. As he changes us, we go. And as we go, he continues to change us. And he says, I'm going to send them from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, there in verse 8, and then to the ends of the earth. And some scholars think that's an outline for the entire book of Acts. Some people think that's a model for how we should go out. I just think it's the way that God works. The gospel goes. The gospel bears fruit. It cannot be stopped because it's backed by his spirit a spirit of power, and then that means that you might have to change the way you think about sending. It may mean that you have to change the way you think about being sent. Just this week, um, I was talking to a friend who said, people only leave churches when something's wrong. <laughs> was, like, that couldn't be farther from the truth. I couldn't disagree more strongly. Even if it is true, it shouldn't be true. We should be churches that are bringing people in, changing, changing them by the gospel, and then sending them back out. We should be churches that are planting additional churches. We should send foreign missionaries, and we should send them to the far reaches of the earth. We should send them to other neighborhoods out in Philadelphia. We should send them everywhere because the Spirit is on the move. I don't have time to go into this, but go back and just read the whole Bible. <laughs> Definitely don't have time. But notice how much movement there is 
There's a ton of movement. Like in the beginning, the spirit's hovering over the waters. And then the people of Israel, they're like leaving Egypt and they're wandering around and they're going to do place. And then they're in exile. There is just movement all over the place. And then in Acts, these guys are Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem. He's back to Galilee. He's going to Jerusalem. And then in Acts, they're all over the place, all over the Mediterranean. The Bible is filled with movement. But sometimes what we want to do is we want to stay and we want people to stay. I know you guys feel that because you have so many people who are in and out. It's so transitory. There's so many people that are coming and going. That is okay. Those of you who are coming, I ask you to look at yourselves as those who are being equipped. And those of you who are going, look at you, look at yourselves as those who are being sent to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, wherever you go. And that will change the way you look at the new neighborhood you move into. It will change the way you look at the people around you. It will change the way you think about your new job. It may even change what job you take. It may even change where you end up going. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everyone's called to be a professional missionary or a pastor. If you have the spirit, you are witnesses. You are witnesses already. And that means the first place you are sent is into your neighborhood, into the workplace, into your family, into your network of friends. And again, if you would think of yourself as sent there, that's going to change the way you interact with family. It's going to change the way you interact with your coworkers. It's going to change the way you interact with your friends because you're going to have to compare the God that you're tempted to worship in those places to the true and living God who has given his spirit. Basically, you're going to have to do the same thing that Isaiah did. You're going to have to put the idols on trial. If you live in North Philly, you ask yourself, what are the idols? What are people worshiping? What gives people meaning? What are they afraid of losing? What would they die for? And then start to examine those idols in your own heart. If you work at a school, I know a lot of your teachers, ask yourself, what do teachers worship? As a teacher myself, I saw teachers worship order, control, and morality which do not help students, they will crush students. Okay, Every occupation has something that it turns to. Every neighborhood has something that it turns to. What do 20 and 30-year-olds who live in the city worship? Is it pleasure? Is it reputation? Is Is it control? Is it approval? Is it more education? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your trust in? What gives your life meaning? Ask God's spirit to smash the idols, to break down the idols, and you will find I'm not in a Christian faith that has no meaning or takes no effort or involves just a bland, mediocre, sort of domestic, um, Victorian thing. What it means is you are in a cosmic battle with spiritual authorities, and you will have to pray. You will have to pray and depend upon God's spirit to remove these idols from yourself and from those around you and to help you remove them from those who are around you. And then what you're going to see is that our idols have been institutionalized into entire systems of injustice and racism and materialism and shame. And so we're back to the corporate. We're back to the social, right? The kingdom of God has implications for all those things, but you can't address the political simply as political. You have to address it as spiritual. And the idols that people are worshiping, the idols that people are putting together into a system, and as you work on those things, then suddenly you see the kingdom affects the political, the kingdom affects the economic, the kingdom affects this neighborhood, the kingdom affects everything. Jesus is risen from the dead. That affects everything. There's not a thing that it doesn't touch. And he's bringing his kingdom to bear on the political, the economic, and the social institutions around you. The kingdom is coming. 
And man, that is convicting me right now just to say, Lord, send me out to be a part. Don't you want to be a part of that dynamic kingdom? It is an everlasting kingdom that will not fail. In conclusion, let me say this. The, um, if you notice, I titled the sermon, Waiting for a Superman. It's not an allusion to the movie about education, which some of you might have seen. I have not yet. It's to a song by the Flaming Lips, which you may have heard. You may have heard it covered by bands like Iron and Wine. It's a very good cover. Here's what I think. Those guys are right. There are things that are too heavy for Superman to lift. That's the weight of the frustration of the world. But we have got to stop wanting some false Superman out there to change us and start praying for the spirit in here to work and to move and to stir up and to attach us to the risen risen Jesus. Otherwise, everything we're doing is too superficial. Everything that we're doing is on the surface. Everything that we're doing is building a human kingdom. Ask him instead to transform you into an outpost um, of his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, will you bring yourself glory? That's what you do. Would you gather worshipers to be a part of bringing yourself glory? That's what you do. Would you use this church, these people, transform them to the the core in their hearts, the darkest places where they think no one could come? Let Jesus in, let light in, and let the spirit in. And then I pray that their response, and I pray that my response would be, Uh, send me now to bring this life-transforming spirit to every other person that I come in contact with. Just unite us to Christ. Will your spirit be with us as as we take communion? Help us to see where is that spirit moving in our lives? What are the things that we can do to advance your kingdom? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.